Welcome to the City Church Cardiff podcast. We're an Elim Pentecostal church in the centre of Cardiff, dedicated to bringing hope in the name of Jesus. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you're inspired and impacted by this message. Well, welcome once again to our 11am service. I heard the story of a pastor and a taxi driver. They both died, they went to heaven, and Peter greeted them at the pearly gates. Come with me, Peter said to the taxi driver. And he showed him to his mansion. And it was a mansion beyond his wildest dreams. It had everything that he could think of. It had a bowling alley and a cinema complex, and it even had an Olympic-sized swimming pool. And the taxi driver said, thank you. And then Peter said to the pastor, come with me. And he took him to a comparatively modest apartment. And the pastor said, whoa, 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 Peter, I think there's been a mistake here. I mean, I was the pastor. I would go to church every day. I would preach God's word to God's people. And Peter said, well, yeah, that's right. But during your sermons, people slept. But when the taxi driver drove, people prayed. Welcome to the final session in our series, The End of the World as We Know It, where we have been looking at teaching concerning the end times, or to put it technically, eschatology. And in the first session, one of the things we looked at was the four main eschatological systems or ways at looking at the events which usher in the beginning of the end. We looked at dispensational premillennialism, and we looked at historic premillennialism, and postmillennialism, and amillennialism. I'm not going to go over all of that. You can listen back to the first session. And then last week, Pastor David, he focused on the second coming of Jesus Christ and showed us how we can prepare for that glorious event. Today, we're looking at what the Bible has to say about the final judgments and the eternal states. We're going to be exploring Themes in scripture such as the great white throne judgment, the judgment seat of Christ, and the new creation. Those events which mean the end of the world, at least as we presently know it. Now, I need to say this. There are different opinions which exist on the timeline pertaining to those events in the last days. And particularly the judgment or the judgments even. Now, it's not within the remit of this particular sermon to give the exact timetable for these events. And of course, it depends upon where you stand in terms of premillennialism and postmillennialism and amillennialism, which we talked about in the first session. But suffice it to say that premillennialists say that the great white throne judgment, and we'll be explaining that in a moment, that this occurs at least 1,000 years after the judgment seat of Christ. They believe that the time, the place, and the judgment of believers and unbelievers are not the same. Christ having come first for his church, before the millennium of at least 1,000 years, and then only later to raise and to judge unbelievers. Amillennialists and postmillennialists, on the other hand, they think that there is only uh, one general resurrection of both believer and unbeliever, and that the great white throne judgment And the judgment seat of Christ, which we'll be exploring today, that these happen more or less around the same time because there is just this one general resurrection. Now, though there are, of course, disagreements on the timeline and the details, for our purposes today, that's not important because 
all positions agree on the fact that there will be a final judgment of at least unbelievers at the great white throne. And they also maintain that believers will face a judgment and have to give an account too. So it's these areas of consensus that I'm going to be focusing on today. So let's get to it. Would you turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 to 15. And here is an awesome cosmic scene describing a final judgment that takes place at the end of the world as we know it, where death is fully and finally defeated. And Revelation 20 says, from verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. What we are seeing here in Revelation chapter 20 is the final judgment of unbelievers at the great white throne when their souls will be brought back from the dead and united with their bodies, and then they are sent, or even sentenced, to the lake of fire for all eternity. Now, let me just back up for a second. It's not been the main focus of this particular series, but it's worth noting something here about individual eschatology. Did you know that for every single one of us here and everyone watching at home, that after you die, you will still be alive. Huh? Yep. After you die, you will still be alive, albeit in a different sense. That's right. Upon death, you just won't simply go out of existence or not be conscious of your surroundings. The Bible shows that immediately after you die, your soul or your spirit, call it what you will, will go to one of two places. Either a place of indescribable joy in the present heaven or unbearable gloom in the present hell. Now notice my use of the word present in relation to describing heaven and hell. Yes, when Christians die, they go to heaven. And yes, when unbelievers die, they go to the other place. But it's not a one-stage post-mortem journey as is commonly thought. This is because the Bible actually teaches that when a person dies, his or her soul, his or her spirit enters into an intermediate state, awaiting the final resurrection of the body and the eternal state. Now, the intermediate state for the unbeliever is the present hell, or sometimes called Hades. The intermediate state for the believer is the present heaven. Now I'm going to do a slight detour um, here, but it's an important detour. We'll take the scenic route for a moment. Often people fail to distinguish between the 
intermediate state, that is what happens when we die now, they fail to distinguish between the intermediate state and the eternal state. That is what happens at Jesus' second coming, the resurrection of the dead, the final judgment, and the ushering in of the new creation. And so they use words like heaven and hell to just, in a blanket way, to describe them both. But Revelation 20, which we've just read, talks about the future lake of fire. And crucially, Chapter later, Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 to 5 especially, talks about the future joining of heaven and earth in a new act of creation where believers will forever be in the presence of God. Now, Revelation 21, verses 1 to 5, is up on the screen. I'm not going to read it now, but let me just describe it because this amazing passage describes heaven literally coming down to the new or resurrected earth that is free from the stain and the corruption of sin. We see the great capital city, the new Jerusalem, and we see that the dwelling place of God comes down out of heaven onto the new earth, and now God literally dwells with his people. Oh, I would love to dig deeper into this wonderful passage, but time doesn't allow that. But suffice it to say, in biblical eschatology, heaven is not really about God taking us up there, somewhere to live in a realm made for him as is commonly thought but actually it's about God coming down and living in the realm that he made for us and the new creation of heaven and earth together in the same dimension is actually the culmination of the biblical story where Christ accomplishes his original purposes for creation and God provides his people with a place to dwell with him for all eternity. Just as originally in the Garden of Eden, you can read about this in the early chapters of the book of Genesis, just as originally there was no sin and no death and no curse, well, on the new earth, there will be no more sin and no more death and no more curse either. In fact, whatever sin has touched God will redeem and bring into alignment with his original purposes, the purposes for which he originally created. So at the climax of history, God is going to restore it all and he's going to make all things new. He's going to put things right and he's going to make things be and become what he intended them to be all along right there in the beginning. Now we're coming off the scenic route and back onto our main road. True believers... In Jesus Christ, who die today, they will go directly into the conscious presence of God in the intermediate state. Now this means that regardless of the manner of death of the Christian believer, the death of the Christian is always a glorious thing, a victorious thing. Why? Because the soul, the spirit, goes to be with God in the present heaven, awaiting the eternal state, so awaiting the resurrection and the glorification of the body and also our permanent relocation to the new earth where God will live with his people for all eternity. Now, it's the intermediate state, but make no mistake about it. Even this intermediate state will be something quite incomparable to everything that we have hitherto experienced. It will be glorious. Why? Because we will be in the presence of Jesus. But the fact is that 
Whether the believer's body is cremated or buried, it remains here on this earth until Jesus returns to the earth to resurrect our bodies and usher in the new heavens and the new earth and our new home in the eternal heaven. For unbelievers, so for those who die without Jesus Christ, they too will be alive after death. Their body remains on earth, but for them, their soul, their spirit enters into a new realm too. However, it is not the presence of Christ. It's the present hell. If you were reading the Old Testament, you might see this referred to sometimes as Sheol. If you go to the New Testament, you might see this referred to especially as Hades. Sheol, Hades, the temporary hell, the intermediate hell, these are to be distinguished from the permanent hell, the lake of fire, which we've just read about in Revelation chapter 20. There, when we were looking at the great white throne, the place where people are sentenced to this lake of fire. In fact, going back to Revelation chapter 20, we see that the lake of fire is a place of everlasting torment. It's prepared for Satan, for his angels, and all those who've rejected Christ and died in their sins. And unbelievers are sentenced here at this great white throne. Just think of those words for a moment, great white throne. The word great is talking about um, its power and its authority. You can think of the great white throne as the supreme court of the universe. This court has full power and full authority to sentence body and soul to hell for eternity. And this is what is indeed being referred to in Revelation 20 as the second death. It's called white because it speaks of purity and righteousness. The judgments of this supreme court are in fact pure. They are right. They are just. They are fair. You're not going to find people there complaining about the judge. The judge didn't have enough evidence to put me away. It's a miscarriage of justice. No, it's a white throne here. The judgments, they're not going to be seen as arbitrary or capricious because it speaks of righteous judgments. And it's called the throne. Why? Because it's the seat of a king. And who is the king? It's Jesus. Jesus who sits on this throne, the one to whom every knee will bow that day. Now, this judgment at the great white throne is not so much about the judge's verdict. Why? Because that has already been decided at the moment of physical death. We have one chance in this life. Once we pass from this life to the next, then our chance ends. And so that has already been decided at the moment of physical death. And remember, actually, in verse 12, the unbelievers um, are described there in Revelation 20 as dead. It's talking here of a spiritual death. These are people who are not alive. They've not been made alive in Jesus Christ, which is why up until this point in Revelation 20, they have been there in Hades, in the present hell, the intermediate hell. The great white throne judgment is for unbelievers, for all the dead of all the ages who are not saved or who were not saved during their time on this earth. But it's not a question of salvation or damnation. Why? Because that's already been decided. The great white throne is more like the sentencing, the sentencing of those who have lived 
independently of Jesus here on this earth, and they have rejected his free offer of the payment of their sins and his free gift of eternal life. And the unsaved dead, they are raised here, Revelation 20, to receive the final sentence, which is banishment from the presence of God and eternal punishment in the lake of fire. And what we see in Revelation 20 is that the great white throne judgment, therefore, is more to determine the degree of punishment. Now, all who are there will go to the lake of fire and suffer in the fire. But evidently from Revelation 20, there will be degrees of punishment. Now, the dead who appear at this judgment are described as great and small. So they are people from all walks of life, but they have this in common, that they rejected Jesus. They didn't take up his amazing offer in the gospel. And so they are now being judged on the basis of their works, how they have lived their lives. And so in this regard, Revelation 20 starts to talk about the books of records of every person who is there at this judgment. Now, another book is mentioned too. It's called the book of life. But their names are not in this book of life. And so here's what the picture is. At the end of all time, at the end of the world as we presently know it, each person will be judged by the contents of either the book of life, or as we see in Revelation 20, the books which record his or her deeds. Records have been kept, and the records will be opened and read. This is the scene that we see here. And note that unbelievers are judged according to their works. Now, someone might be saying, hang on a second. The Bible says, Ephesians 2, verses 8 to 9, that we are not saved by works, but by faith in Jesus Christ. And that's exactly right. And in fact, that's exactly the point here. Because these people have no saving relationship with Jesus, because they have not put their faith in Jesus, and since their works can never save them, they therefore have no way to pay for their sins at the great white throne judgment. And this is why their names are not found in the book of life, which would have spared them from condemnation and judgment that day. You know, when we reject Jesus and his work on the cross, that is his work to die as our substitute to bring forgiveness of sins and peace with God for all eternity, what we're really doing there is we are rejecting our place in the book of life. And we're saying, I'm choosing for my life to be judged based on my own works as recorded in those other books. Contrast this with the hope of the genuine believer in Jesus Christ. Because if you have truly committed your life to Jesus, made him the Lord and Savior of your life, then I've got good news for you. That the moment you said yes to Jesus, that moment, no matter what your past was like before, he has covered your sins. Not just your past sins, but your present sins and your future sins. And he's put your name in the book of life. And he's not going to take it out. This means that God doesn't judge us by the record of our sins in the other books. For Jesus has dealt with that. And in fact, he's closed those other books and he's put our name in the book of life. 
But if you choose to close the cover of the book of life, as it were, then the other books are opened and you're judged according to these, which is precisely what we see in Revelation chapter 20. Now, theoretically, if you had only good deeds recorded in these other books and no sins whatsoever, then I guess you'd actually be allowed into heaven. You'd make it, you'd be welcomed into heaven. But therein lies the problem. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You see, the standard here as to what is good is not any human standard. It's God's perfect moral perfection, which doesn't leave room for any sin, even one sin. But this is where, friends, the gospel of Jesus Christ is so amazing because we had no hope on our own. But Jesus Christ, he lived the life that we should have lived. He died the death that we should have died. And he credits to our record, to our account, his righteousness. And that's why our names are in the book of life, all genuine believers of Jesus Christ. So Revelation 20 shows that the unsaved will be there at the great white throne, appearing in a physical body to be condemned to the permanent hell, an eternity of suffering in the lake of fire. Sometimes people ask, how could a loving God send people to a place of everlasting suffering? I get the sentiment, but can I say humbly, I think the question is actually framed incorrectly because God doesn't send anyone to hell. In fact, the heart of the gospel is the amazing lengths that God has gone to. He paid the highest price imaginable so that we shouldn't go there. That we don't need to go there. 2 Peter 3, 9 says that the Lord is not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So it's the choice of every individual that sends them to hell. Our God is a God of love. He loves you. And he gives us every possible opportunity right now in this service. Those of you in the building, those of you watching online, this is an opportunity. It's an opportunity to receive Jesus, to repent of your sin, to make him the Lord and Savior of your life. But it's your decision. And so today, as respectfully as I can, let me make this clear. Anyone there in the lake of fire that day will be there by their own personal choice. You see, Rejecting the invitation to heaven here on this earth means that we will be cast into the lake of fire then. Rejecting Jesus now means rejecting him then. How sad that is when Jesus died for our sins so that we wouldn't have to live an eternity without him. He did this for us so that we wouldn't have to go either to the intermediate Hades and hell or the permanent hell. Now, just before moving on to talk about the judgment seat of Christ, can I say something to all the Christians here? What we've just been learning about from Revelation chapter 20, this is why the number one task of every single Christian on this planet, 
and I pray to God in this church, is to share the gospel with those who do not know Jesus. Those who do not know the joy right now of relationship with Jesus and those who do not have the hope of eternity. The gospel is the initiative of God to restore human beings to union with him. It's good news because it means sinful people like me who otherwise would have had no hope whatsoever of heaven can be reconciled to a holy God and receive new and eternal life which brings joy in this life and eternal satisfaction. So let's share this glorious news with others. Now notice that I've been talking so far about unbelievers and the judgment that awaits them. But what should not be missed in all of this teaching is that Christians too will face a judgment, although an altogether different one to the great white throne judgment that I've been describing. It's called the judgment seat of Christ, and it's not to do with our eternal salvation, though I guess it will determine certain aspects of our experience in the eternal state. Would you turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5? Let me highlight that this is written by the Apostle Paul. Now, note that this same Paul is the same man who argued so passionately for the fact that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, that we are not saved by works. I highlight that because now he's about to highlight himself the very key significance of works. And he's not contradicting himself. So this same Paul said to believers in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. And then Romans 14.10, the New King James Version, so not the NIV here, says, For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. The judgment seat of Christ is not a judgment about being saved or not. You see, the Bible teaches that for all true Christians, and I'm stressing the word true because there are many nominal Christians out there, but for those true Christians, in other words, those who have truly thrust themselves upon Jesus Christ and given their lives to him, those who have been, in other words, truly justified and declared righteous, not guilty by God, all sin has been forgiven and dealt with once and for all by the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Jesus Christ took our place and our judgment. He's been judged on our behalf and he took the penalty for our sins. He bore that in his own body there on the cross. That's right, our sins are totally forgiven when we come to Christ. We stand justified before him. And as Christians, we will never face those sins, the accusations of those sins again in the judgment, in the forensic sense, at least, the legal sense, which is the sense that is being referred to in Revelation chapter 20, which is to determine whether someone is saved or not. That's why, and all I'm about to say, I want to couch it in this. That's why Romans 8.1 says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for all those who are in Christ Jesus. So actually the judgment seat of Christ has nothing to do with the salvation of the believer. Why? Because that has already 
being determined the moment that we die. Because again, we have this chance here on earth. Once we pass through death's door, then that chance is extinguished. So it has nothing to do with determining salvation or where we will spend eternity. Rather, its purpose is to determine eternal rewards or the loss of them. And so what this essentially means is that in the afterlife, there will be two sorts of believers, two sorts of saved people. The first group, those who will have a reward or rewards. Elsewhere, this is called treasure or prize or crowns. And actually, I think in 2 Peter 1, verses 10 to 11, we'll read it now. I think these are the ones, the ones who are going to get a reward. These are the ones who are being referred to as a certain kind of believer who's going to get a rich welcome into heaven. And Peter says, for if, so no, it's not automatic here, for if you do these things, you will never stumble and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So what we can see here is that there are some Christians who will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom, a glorious welcome, a triumphant welcome into God's kingdom. I believe that these are the same ones who are being uh, referred to as those who would have a reward at the judgment seat of Christ. But then there's a second group of people, those who will not receive a reward. I believe these are the ones that we read about in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 to 15. Let's read it now. Paul says, if anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved even though only as one escaping through the flames. This passage here is describing the judgment seat of Christ, the testing of our works, the believer's works. No one believers here, the testing of the believer's works by fire. Now note here that these ones who are saved by fire, they are still saved. This is because they have made a genuine commitment to Jesus Christ. But they are saved by fire. And so they will not receive that rich welcome. And they will not receive a reward either. Either because of the commission of righteous acts. So wrong things that they have done. Or uh, of unrighteous acts. Um, because they've done these unrighteous things. Or the omission of righteous acts. In other words, they've not done what they should have been doing. As an aside, let me just say here, friends, that this is the double whammy of sin and disobedience in the life of the believer. Because it costs us here on this earth. Promises much, it delivers little. But it can also cost us in eternity, at least in terms of the loss of potential rewards. Now let's think about what is being said in this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. It's a building metaphor. And imagine in this life that... Everything you say and everything you do, through those words and actions, you're building something. And you're building either with 
Wood, hay, or straw. Now, what will happen to wood, hay, or straw when you set it alight? It will kind of um, burn up. Or you're building with gold, silver, and precious stones. What will happen? Well, they will survive through the fire. They will stand the fire. Now, as a Christian, the foundation that we rest on is Jesus Christ. That's the foundation upon which we build. But then we build the superstructure on top of the foundation. We build the rest of our lives on top of the foundation. And ultimately, it's this superstructure that is what is being tested here in the fire at the judgment seat of Christ. The foundation is one thing. What we build, the superstructure, is entirely another thing. And the fire here in 1 Corinthians 3 exposes the quality of the superstructure what we build on top of the foundation. So let's just get this right doctrinally. We are not saved by the quality of the superstructure, by our works, in other words. We are saved because of the foundation. And salvation rests on the foundation. Salvation rests on Jesus Christ. But rewards rests on the superstructure. Our reward is based on the quality of the superstructure and the materials with which we use to build on top of that foundation. So we could put it like this. Salvation is indeed by grace what God has done. But reward at the judgment seat of Christ is based on works, what we do. And this is why Paul is saying here, our works do matter. Not simply about having the entrance ticket to heaven. No, our works matter. By works here, I mean what we do or don't do as believers with the resources that God has entrusted to us. Resources here meaning our time, our energy, our talents, our money, the people that he has given us to care for. All of our God-given assets, in fact, and how we have stewarded those. You see, every single one of us, as believers in Jesus Christ, we have a purpose. A purpose ultimately to glorify God through our lives on this earth. And God gives us talents and God gives us spiritual gifts to equip us in that purpose. And it's our stewardship of that mandate, which is what is being judged here at the judgment seat of Christ. So the fire is to test your works, not to determine your salvation. It's there to test the quality of the superstructure. It's there to test whether you will be approved or not. Whether you'll be approved or disqualified in the matter of rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. So if you are on the foundation, you are saved. Why? Because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are saved by the sheer outrageous love and grace of God. By the imputed or credited righteousness of Jesus Christ to our account. Where he wipes out that record of our sin and puts our name in the Lamb's book of life. But this is not exempt us from having to stand before the judgment seat of Christ that day and face the judgment for our works. So all Christians will stand before the Lord on that day at the judgment seat of Christ. And at that time, it will be shown whether we've been storing up treasure on earth or in heaven. So while salvation is a gift, there are rewards given for faithfulness in the Christian life. And there's lots of rewards for unfaithfulness. Uh, what does it matter? I'm in heaven anyway. Do you know what? You are in heaven anyway. But all I can think of here is the Apostle Paul. 
1 Corinthians 9, he couldn't conceive of entering into eternity rewardless. He said, I discipline my body and I make it my slave so that after I preach to others, I will not be disqualified for the prize. And so this teaching on rewards and the judgment seat of Christ, it's one of the most sobering passages of scripture. But can I tell you something? It's also one of the most motivating for the believer too. Because there is the possibility, friends, of great reward. And yet the sad fact is, and I see this so often in pastoral ministry, that not all Christians, because of the choices they are making presently, are setting themselves up to receive that reward. The day when our worthless works will be burned up by fire. This is why Paul the pastor says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 18 to 19, he says, Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. So here's the thing. I hope you grab hold of this. Today, through our choices and our actions and our obedience to Christ, we can invest in our eternal future. We hope you're encouraged by today's message. To find out more, visit our website at citychurchcardiff.com or find us on social media.